Good morning, friends. Our scripture this morning, as Gail has already led us toward, is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. Some of you are going to know this story, perhaps because you were children in the church. So hear this word from the book of Matthew. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the lake in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness among the people. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we ask that this morning we are able to draw near to you and your presence that we would feel, feel your spirit fill us, that we would feel your spirit fill this place. We ask that you bless us with insight, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So like I said a moment ago, our story is a well-known one. Jesus calling new followers as disciples and inviting them to um, not professional fishermen, but instead fishers of people. I have so many questions for Jesus and these potential fishers of people who don't fish also for fish later on uh, from our text this morning. And as I was working on this text the last couple of weeks, I, I kept writing down questions. So you're going to walk with me through those questions and maybe we'll share them. Now, I grew up fishing on the Huron River. Uh, it's a little waterway that leads directly to the lake of my own heart, the waters of my heart, Lake Erie, in Ohio. And my dad would wake my brothers and I, Ben and Lex, before dawn. And he would, I remember he would shake us up and he'd say, he'd say, it's not raining. We need to go fishing. And some days he would say, it's raining. We need to go fishing. <laughs> and we'd walk through the woods to the riverfront on our property to gingerly step into the old aluminum canoe that we had had my entire life. We'd take our rods and our reels and the cooler for the fish that we hopefully caught. Usually, it was bluegill. And there, some of you may not know this, but bluegill are tiny, pretty, and entirely useless fish. And we always had to throw the bluegill back because you really can't eat them because they're so small. But sometimes, very exciting days included perch or walleye, or my favorite because they had really gross whiskers and funny faces. Sometimes we would catch catfish. You knew it, Rosie. On those days, we whooped and hollered and planned grand feasts and scared away all of the rest of the fish that we would have caught later. 
but mostly fishing was slimy and it was boring and unsatisfying. Usually felt, it felt like all we did was what um, my favorite comedian, unfortunately late comedian Mitch Hedberg used to say. He said, they catch the fish and then they let them go. They don't want to eat the fish, they just want to make it very late for something. <laughs> so we just made fish late for things most days and then went home. What made me think, since I'm an experienced fisher person, I haven't fished in a really long time, but I do have a lot of hours on the water. What is fishing really? It's trying to catch something for our own purposes, right? To consume it or to entertain ourselves. And this made me wonder what it is that I fish for now, that I don't get up early on misty mornings to sit in a canoe and wait for catfish. Sometimes, I fish for compliments. Sometimes I fish for assurance. I certainly fish for security. On my best days, I fish for justice and peace and delight. And this line of thought makes me think about what fishes for me in return. I mean, not 10 verses before this story, there is Jesus, and he's getting fished for in the desert by evil. You remember this temptation story of Jesus sitting in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by evil. Now, he's just been baptized in that story. That water was probably still fresh on his clothes. He probably still smelled of it. But he has no break before that temptation. He's just returned to town from those 40 days in the wilderness. He's meditating on his call and identity and being tempted by the personification of evil, what Matthew, in fact, calls Satan. And it makes me think about what bait the anti-kingdom, that personification of evil, the devilish of the world, uses to try to hook him. We hear in that story that he is tempted with bread, and the assurance of abundance, that he's tempted with then safety and security, and finally that he's tempted by authority and power. Are any of these familiar to you? Does the world try to hook you with any of these temptations? Evil's tactics, after all, seem to be pretty eternal and not all that original. It goes with what's been proven to work, after all, and the human condition is that we sort of fall for the same tricks over and over again. But it does find creative ways to adapt to its time and to our time, and so I was thinking of my own small world and the ways those things show up for me, and that world says to me, it's okay. It's okay to save money for yourself, just... It's okay. How else will you help others, after all? How will you let yourself live? Just, just save a little more, and then it will be enough. That's a tricky sentence. Then it will be enough. It encourages me to hoard things for myself and call it helping others in the long run, to not give as generously as I know I ought in order to bring, usher in the kingdom that is at hand except it doesn't speak of all the abundance that I already have. It calls to the future, to my anxiety, not to the present, and assurance. 
And it also taps me on the shoulder and asks whether I really need to step into spaces where my white, employed, insured body is at risk. Because it's already, and also, a female body that has already taken enough violence for one lifetime. I mean, what if I just, it says to me, sat this one out? What if I sat out all of the rest of them because I've earned enough? I've earned enough. I've risked enough. What if it's my turn to be safe? Except it doesn't then speak of all the safety and security I already have, of the nuance of those who have female bodies too and do not have the option, as I do, to opt out of those conversations or situations, of those risks. When it tries to hook me, it isn't subtle and it isn't interested in complexity. The evil has my number on authority too. This is my real vulnerability, and I have to be very careful because it knows. It reminds me that with my smarts and my friends and my good instincts, I can do real work in this world. I can do some real good, and I can really get a whole lot more done if I just cut some corners in some teensy-weensy little areas. If I just leaned a little bit more into authoritarian leadership, and shoved my shoulders in a bit more and maybe got a bit louder and listened just a little bit less to oppositional voices, that pulpit would really lend some power. I could really get some things done. For good, of course. (laughs) Clearly. It whispers that I'd never be one to use that power for anything but good. That I would never take advantage course, it doesn't care that literally never in the history of humanity has a human being who has been afforded more power and more authority not taken advantage of it, at least a little. None of us has been successful in that feat of will, not without God's help. So I wonder, as I was walking through my own temptations, And what's fished for me? What's fishing for you? What does the voice say to you? Maybe it sounds like mine does. It it might. Or maybe it speaks through addiction. Or maybe it tries to turn mutual relationship into transactions. Sure, I'll give. Sure, I'll share. But you better give me something back. Maybe it tells you to run from pain, yours and others. If I just avoid it, it doesn't really exist. It won't really affect me. Or maybe it tells you to grab for whatever you need because you literally and legitimately do not have enough. And others may get to what you can get before you and take it away. Or maybe it tells you you're not worth anything if fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. It probably encourages you in some way to hustle for your own belonging. Because that is what the voice wants. is for you to be so busy hustling for your own belonging that it doesn't notice you already belong. You'll know it because it causes shame and anxiety or maybe a little rumble of fear in your stomach. That voice always causes those things. 
And I, I think of Jesus and how he responded to the voice, because immediately I think, well, if this is the human condition, then what can we possibly do? In verse 410, Jesus said to them, said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God only. And he turns the tables on that voice and goes to the heart of things. He says, basically, I don't serve you. I serve God. And this makes the devil go away. And I think of how, after an encounter with darkness under his belt, such as this one, he comes away with some deep clarity about his ability to say no in the face of the hardest things to say no to. He can see the weaknesses and the agendas. He moves with purpose towards his own calling, and he begins then to seek out other people who will also say no, who will also follow God's voice instead of the world's voice. And what is fascinating about this story, as we hear Matthew tell it, and also Mark and Luke, is that these are normal people. These are not people who have already proven that they have some special skill set around saying no to evil. In fact, they don't learn very quickly, and Jesus holds with them in those moments. Some of you know the story of Peter. He's not successful all the time. These are average people like us. They're ordinary. He doesn't ask, who would be the most strategic addition to my team as we take over the world? He simply finds people at work in the midst of their ordinary days and lives and says, how about you? How about you, Bev? These men in this story, they have never ever seen Jesus before. According to this text, they do not know him yet. They have not seen any of his miracles. They have heard none of his teachings. They have received no explanations and certainly no destinations for where they're headed if they say yes. And this wasn't about accepting principles for living or some high-minded and abstract yes that they were saying not to just admire him or to assent to something he was saying, but to follow him to get up and follow this person who they would later discover embodies the living God. And he doesn't throw back the bluegill when he gets them, hoping for walleye or catfish. No, he gets some bluegill out of this deal. Remember Judas? Bluegill. Would have done well to throw that one back in the lake. But he keeps them. He barely waits to see even what these responses are in this story. He barely waits before he turns on his heel and he strides into the next piece of the work, just assuming, it seems, that they will say yes if they can and if they will. He doesn't tempt. He just states. He doesn't threaten. He makes plain. And in that invitation to follow, he assumes people will make a true and good judgment of themselves and him. Because he doesn't offer something in return other than that they'll learn to do what he does. Follow me and I will make you fisher of men. To become what he is. Of course, that thing will not be easy. It's not exactly tempting in the way that the world usually tempts. Now, these guys, according to the story, don't know the ending yet. And we do. So we know what they're walking toward. But he does not offer them assurances of security or fortune or power. 
He just offers them one another and a new voice to listen for. I think about that and I feel a sense of relief. What it would be like to have a different voice to listen for in a world that is so harmful, in a voice that has no shame in it and no anxiety, no anger, no valuation, and no condition. He just says, follow me, full stop. And they do. Now, I said I had some questions. One of my questions is a reasonable response to, hi, stranger, follow me, is, in my estimation, where are you going? But they don't really seem to wonder this, do they, in this story? For some reason, they just get up and go. And so I ask, well, why? <laughs> why? So I want to tell you a short story. This is also about water. It's thematic. And it's one that my meditation teacher tells. I hear this story on an annual basis when I go to my meditation retreat in Washington. So hear this brief story, uh, another parable, if you will. There was a young professor who was making a sea voyage, and he was a highly educated man with a very long trail of letters after his name. And in the crew of the ship on which he was traveling was an illiterate old sailor. And every evening, the sailor and the professor would get together and visit in the cabin, and they would listen to one another, and especially the sailor would listen to the professor, professor lecture on various topics. And he was really impressed with the learning of this young and important man. And so one evening, as the sailor was about to leave the cabin after several hours of conversation, which I imagine was more like a monologue than a dialogue, given the description I just gave you, the professor asks the old man, sort of, you know, it's very self-important. Old man, have you ever studied geology? What is that, sir? The old man says. It's the science of the earth. No, sir, I have never been to school or college. As you know, I have never studied anything. Old man, you have wasted a quarter of your life. Geology, a quarter of his life. Okay. With a long face, the old sailor went away and saying to himself, if such a learned man says so, it certainly must be true. I have wasted a quarter of my life. The next evening, again, as the sailor was about to leave the cabin, the professor raised his hand and says, old man, have you ever studied oceanography? What is that, sir? Well, it's the science of the sea. No, sir, as you know, I have never studied anything. <sighs> old man. You have wasted half of your life. And with a still longer face, the sailor goes away and he says, I have wasted half my life. This learned man says so. The next evening, once again, the young professor questions the old sailor. Old man, have you studied meteorology? What is that, sir? I have never even heard of it. Why, it's the science of the wind and the rain and the weather. No, sir, as you know, I have never been to any school. I have never studied anything. I have never studied meteorology. So you have not studied the science of the earth on which you live, and you have not studied the science of the sea on which you learn your livelihood, and you have not studied the science of the weather which you encounter and are surrounded by on a daily basis? 
Old man, you have wasted three quarters of your life. And the old sailor, as you can imagine, was very unhappy. This learned man says that I have wasted three quarters of my life. Certainly, I must have wasted three quarters of my life. The next day, it was the turn of the old sailor. He came running to the cabin of the young man, and he cried, Professor, 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 Sir, have you studied swimology? (laughs) Swimology? I have never studied swimology. What do you mean? He said, can you swim, sir? No, I, I do not know how to swim. Professor, sir, I bear very bad news. You have wasted all of your life. The ship has struck a rock and is sinking. Those who can swim will reach the nearby shore, but those who cannot swim will drown. And I am so sorry, Professor, sir, you have surely wasted your entire life. Why did they follow Jesus? Not to be too glib, but I think they see an expert in swimology. This world is trying to sell them and us, that geology or some other lesson, safety, security, power, authority, bread, assurance, that some other lesson will save us. It won't, though, and we know it. The only thing, the one thing that saves your life when you're at sea is to know how to swim. You must know how to swim. If you met someone who could teach you, the only person, perhaps, who knew that skill that would save you and your life and the ones that you love, and you knew it in your bones, wouldn't you put down everything that you were carrying and put away everything that was keeping you back to follow that person in whatever lesson they were willing to teach you to save your life? to absorb what they knew so that you could live. Bread may save a quarter of your life, security half of it. Maybe power would save three quarters, I don't know. But what Jesus offered, the kingdom of God at hand, which literally meant to the gospel writers and their communities, the fullness of the living God coming now, here now which Jesus and his followers would have understood quite literally as the most important thing you could possibly learn, was and is the whole of life, and love, and grace, and shalom, and healing, and belonging, and liberation, all in one. This is the Jesus who asks, will you follow me? It's the knowledge of how to swim, even while you're facing down the waves. So another question. What does it look like to offer this to other people? To offer people this different way of looking at the world? What if we didn't fish using the usual tactics, but caught people instead with love? What if we captivated them instead with life? What if they heard us say, don't be afraid. I've got you. We've got you. 
I can be guilty of reading into texts like this, but I don't believe I'm doing so here because we have to remember what happens immediately after this story of Jesus and the fishermen. They, Jesus and these new fishers of people, not fish, immediately wade into the crowds of suffering. The diseases and the pains and the demons and the paralyses, all the things that bind and captivate and hold imprisoned people around them. They wade into those moments and they watch him cure and they learn to do it themselves. Jesus makes a point of teaching them how to do what he does and to do it well. And they say to these people who are suffering, we've got you. Come, live, we can teach you to swim, and after that you can learn to fish for people too. We have what you need. Let us show you. And then they bless the poor and the mourning and the hungry and the merciful and the peacemaker and the persecuted. Alongside Jesus, they offer a different voice, a different life, a completely different reality. And the kingdom of heaven is immediately at hand with this way of fishing. So, beloved, I ask a final question then. Because Jesus is asking you to be that voice. How are you fishing? How are you accompanying and learning from and responding to, imitating, bonding with, abiding in, this Jesus for the sake of the world? What temptations are you being asked to put aside? What voice are you being asked to not hear any longer so you can hear this one? How are you rescuing others from the hooks that are set in them by the anti-kingdom and catching people up in the net of God's grace? How are you doing that? I hope hope that God is providing you with opportunities on a daily basis that may sound more like a curse than a blessing that I just shared with you. And I know that. But I hope that you are being made into those fissures of people by Jesus' presence in your life on a daily basis. And so I pray this week and for all the weeks to come that we are together in this amazing story of Jesus on earth with us, that your reflections and your prayers will lead you and those you encounter ever nearer into God's kingdom, so that you too can say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Come, follow along with me, follow along with Jesus, and learn how to save your life. Learn how to save your life. May it be so for you this week and always. I want to ask you to rise if you're able or go to someone uh, who isn't able to rise on their own and to share the peace of Christ with each other, knowing that you indeed belong with to and for one another's well-being and living. So when you share the peace of Christ, just say, peace be with you, and the other person will respond, and also with you. Andy and I will call you together with the uh, reconnection song, Spirit of the Living God. So when you hear us singing that, please return into the sanctuary.